Well, it's good to be with you. We pray for this church uh, frequently. Uh, we uh, have enjoyed fellowship with Brad on a variety of occasions. Uh, the conversation with him is always interesting and challenging and engaging. He's fun to be around. Uh, so we believe, I don't know if you believe this, but we believe you're blessed to have him as a pastor here. And uh, we're just delighted to be in ministry with Brad. And uh, we were spending time with him recently at a conference, and Brad was actually speaking at that conference. And, and uh, we had the delight of getting to discuss some of those things with him and being challenged by it. And we're thankful for you, brother. We're thankful for you and Hannah, your work here, and uh, your dedication to seeing a church uh, planted that gives honor and gives glory to Jesus. That's very, very much about what we uh, at Deer Creek Church want to be about. Um, I want to uh, share some things with you this morning that might be a little bit disturbing. I just warn you, they disturb me. Uh, so they're probably going to disturb you. And there's a tension that builds in this psalm, uh, and you'll feel it, I think, just as I do. And then there's a resolution that we all need, uh, and that's not going to shock you to know that that's Jesus, and we will get there uh, in about an hour. So here we go. <laughs> uh, in a, a somewhat insightful book entitled The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by a gentleman uh, named Carl Truman, uh, he traces how the statement, I am a woman uh, trapped in a man's body has come to make sense. And uh, this is what he says. I'll just read a, a short little paragraph here to you. He says this. He says, the origins of this book lie in my curiosity about how and why a particular statement has come to be regarded as coherent and meaningful. I am a woman trapped in a man's body. He says, my grandfather died in 1994, less than... 30 years ago, and yet had he ever heard that sentence uttered in his presence, I have little doubt that he would have burst out laughing and considered it a piece of incoherent gibberish. And yet today it is a sentence that many in our society regard as not only meaningful, but so significant that to deny it or to question it in some way is to reveal oneself as stupid, immoral, or subject to yet another irrational phobia. And those who think of it as meaningful are not restricted to the veterans of college uh, seminars or queer theory or French post-structuralism. They're ordinary people with little or no direct knowledge of the critical postmodern philosophies whose advocates swagger along the corridors of our most hallowed centers of learning. So you get the drift of this man's sentiments. He goes on for the next 400 pages, actually, to describe the philosophical and sociological and political and spiritual revolutions that have been happening for the last 150 years, all of which contribute to kind of uh, the way we think in our culture today. It's an interesting book, uh, sometimes challenging to read. Don't always agree with his conclusions, but he does make many uh, sometimes helpful observations. Today he says a person's identity, a person's values, a person's sense of right or wrong is entirely up to their psychological convictions. That's just a fancy way of saying their feelings, whatever they feel. So regardless of family context, uh, regardless of community context, regardless of biological context, you know, chromosomes, etc., regardless of spiritual context, today he says uh, we observe that identity and values and ethics are determined mostly by what I feel, uh, mostly by what I want. 
mostly by what I think, with little or no reference to anything or anyone outside of me. And that general observation is probably mostly accurate. Today, we come to a psalm, however, that directly contradicts that kind of thinking. Remember I said you're going to hear some disturbing things. Well, I find it disturbing too, to be honest with you. But we'll wrestle with, through that tension together, I hope. This psalm is, is packed with, you could call it, one, one author does call it, primal information, vital information, if you will, uh, about the world in which we live, about what is right and what is wrong, about the moral fiber that says the author of this psalm, David, is built into the, the world in which we live, the cosmos that we inhabit. And that's built into it in such a way that it's there regardless what I think, regardless what I feel, and regardless what I want. It kind of makes me feel small. It makes you feel a little small. In our present, secular, kind of me-focused, individualistic world, the idea that anything outside of me might have a right to judge me, uh, might have the authority to say that is right and that is wrong or this is good and that is not. This is who you are, so to speak. That idea today is largely intolerant, intolerable. Uh, it's off-putting. It's unacceptable. Uh, because again, my values, my ethics, my sense of direction, my sense of purpose, my sense of identity must come solely from within, from my personal feelings, if I'm going to be a truly authentic person. Um, the psalm that we just read, or that Brad read for us, challenges that presumption very directly. And consequently, if you believe in Jesus and you're intent on following him and and if you want to obey him, it's going to mean that you live your life knowing that what you believe and choices you make about how you're going to live will be at odds with the popular currents of our culture. And um, it may be the case that those of us who follow Jesus may feel that more and more strongly uh, in years ahead of us. I don't know. Psalm 19 tells us that there are, are laws, there are moral values outside of us. They are objective. They're given to us, in fact, by God himself. In fact, they're derived from who God is. They're derived from his very character. And that makes them both universals, meaning they apply to all men living at all times and in all places. And they're also absolutes, meaning they're not debatable. They're not negotiable, which is, of course, what my heart wants to do. I want to negotiate all this stuff, right? I want to be in on that conversation, deciding what's going to be right and what's going to be wrong. But here in Psalm 19, uh, we're not given that option. Uh, decades ago, there was something called values clarification. Only a few of us uh, that have enough years under our belt remember that phrase and that thing. Uh, values clarification. It was introduced into American uh, education. There was a lot of uproar about it, I remember. Uh, the idea then was that supposedly to help children uh, better clarify, better identify their values, things they believe, uh, they would be, there would be conversations generated through a series of questions. And so fourth graders were asked questions like this. What's your favorite color? And they would you know, all have different colors. And, you know, do you like yogurt? Some did, some didn't. Uh, what do you think about sex outside of marriage? Just kind of throw that one in there, you know. <laughs> what is your favorite baseball team? And I'm, I'm actually not kidding. Those are actually questions that were a part of conversations that were happening. Today, this has kind of evolved. It's gotten more interesting. We've added questions like, do you feel a, like a person 
trapped in the wrong body. And a lot of serious conversation, of course, is happening around questions like that. The assumption was then, way back 30 plus years ago, and still is today, that questions like that are all morally neutral questions. And uh, in other words, you know, the color you prefer, whether you like or don't like something like yogurt, uh, your personal uh, gender identification, the people you prefer to have sex with or whatever, these are all moral equivalents. That's the underlying assumption. These are just things that each person needs to clarify for themselves. And the Bible challenges us when we think that way. Uh, the Bible would say that if that is your conclusion, that these are all just moral equivalents, then, you know, you're wrong. And I, personally, I don't like that. I don't like to be told that anything I'm thinking is wrong or any, any uh, desires or feelings I have might be challenged. In, in, psalm, in this psalm, Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6, it makes several important assertions. And uh, the first one would be this, that there is this glorious God who has made absolutely everything, top to bottom. Uh, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. That's the first assertion. There is this glorious God who has made it all, including you and me. And then second, it says he is known by all people everywhere. There's no speech, it says in verse 3, or language where their voice is not heard. Now, here's the thing. I can deny him. I can declare him to be dead or irrelevant. I can choose to disregard anything that he might say about himself or about life or about what's right or what's wrong. But this psalm is telling me that even if I do that, that doesn't change anything. It doesn't really matter. The creation, you see, proclaims his presence. The creation itself proclaims his power, his glory. And it does this day after day after day after day. Uh, this is what the Apostle Paul uh, refers to in Romans chapter 1. Uh, that what can be known about God is plain to us, all people, everywhere, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. I'm without excuse so I, if I can't see or don't see or refuse to see these things. That's troubling. That bothers something in me. We'll come back to that in a minute. There's another assertion here. It's, it's not as clear, but it's definitely implied, and that is that this God who's made it all, including you and me, is a very, very, very good God. Uh, in verses 4 through 6 uh, is where we get this implication. It says, In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion. How does a bridegroom come forth from his pavilion. That's right. <laughs> no, excitedly, I think, right? I mean, a bridegroom is, is thinking, this is the day. I'm getting married. This is fantastic. I'm going to be with the woman I love. So excitedly, right? That's how a bridegroom comes forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. How does a champion look forward to running the course? Well, a champion is excited about it because the champion's going to win, right? This is going to be fun. 
It rises. The sun rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. Uh, the heat is the description of what the sun does to cause things grow, to warm the planet, to make life possible. And the point is that God does these things, the sun rising every morning, setting every night. God does these things, sustains these things, makes these things happen to actually bless us, all people, everywhere. He does it to provide for us. He does it to protect us. And again, he does it with enthusiasm, like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion preparing to run his race. And you can ignore him, or I can suppress him, or I can deny him. It, it, it doesn't change this. God is still good. God is still blessing me if I don't even believe he's there. He's still the reality behind my reality. Without him, uh, I do not and cannot even exist. That's the subtext. Now, one more thing, and, and this is not really the focus of this psalm. It is alluded to later on, and we'll come back to that, but uh, it's, it's mentioned many, many times in other psalms. Uh, psalm 9, verse 8, he will judge the world in righteousness. He will govern peoples with justice. Uh, psalm 97, clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. The idea is that one day this God will hold everything and everyone to account. And of course, that means me. There's a day coming, a day of judgment. Uh, so this, this idea is that the reality of Almighty God, he is the backdrop. He is the bedrock of everything. And that's why David starts where he does in this psalm. He starts with God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. You see, it's all, every bit of it, for his glory. Every bit of it is the work of his hands. And this fact, says David in this psalm, undergirds it all. And if we acknowledge that, if, if we embrace that belief by faith, then we understand what David says in verse 6, where he says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Uh, law here is referring to a lot more than just an, some notion of the Ten Commandments or something like that. David uses the word law so, uh, sort of the way we would talk about the Word of God, God's revelation to us. Uh, David is talking about all of what is revealed about God to us, that our God is a covenanting God. He, he makes promises to us when we find ourselves uh, in despair and, and, and about to be uh, killed. If enemies are coming, he is our Deliverer. He's the one who delivers Israel uh, out of Egypt and delivers his servants out of harm. Uh, this is the God that is revealed in the law of God. It's civil, ceremonial, it's moral law. David says the precepts, the law of the Lord, are right in verse 8. That's an interesting word that he chooses there. It's a pretty significant word, actually. The Hebrew word uh, that David uses is actually referring to a straight-edged tool. Uh, it's referring to a tool used to build buildings, if you will. You couldn't build a building 3,000 years ago, nor can you build one today without tools of accurate measurement. If any of you build anything, you know this to be true. Tools to judge distance, tools to determine straightness. These tools stand outside of us. They judge our perceptions. That's what they're meant to do. They're objective standards by which we build. 
If you're building a building, you don't say, well, I don't know, that wall looks pretty straight, you know, and then move on and put the next wall up to it. You don't ever do that. You, you have to stop. You have to measure. You have to test. You use a plumb line. You use a square. You use a straight edge to measure whether it's true, whether it's straight or whether it's right. And why do we do this? Well, because we know that our perceptions and our impressions can be wrong. That's just a fact. When I was a kid, many, many years ago, uh, I was blessed to have a forest behind our house. And I would go back there with buddies of mine, and we would steal our dad's tools, whatever we could get our hands on, hammers, saws, things like that, nails, boards, wherever we could find them. And we would build tree forts. And uh, we would go back there and First, you know, you start by, by putting these little cross members, two-by-fours, nailed to the tree. I, I know this is environmentally terrible, but I was a child. I didn't know better at the time. Um, and we would build, you know, steps going up the tree so we could get up to where the branches were. Anybody else sin this way? The way I did? Okay, a few of you. And we would, we would get up there, and then we would build these platforms in the trees. This was the coolest thing ever. But absolutely nothing was tight. Nothing was level, and nothing was straight. So how long do you think our forts lasted? Well, you know, winter would come. This is in Indiana. Winter would come. The winds would blow. The snow would fall, and the forts would go. They didn't last even through a single season. We needed better standards. <laughs> we, we needed better objectives outside of ourselves, something precise, something true, something straight to judge our work if we wanted our work to last. And David says in verses 7 and 8 that the law of the Lord is perfect, it's trustworthy, it's right. And that is true because the law literally flows out of the very character of God himself. Meaning that these laws are not arbitrary, they don't shift, they don't change, they are in no way dependent upon us. What we think or what we feel about these things doesn't matter. And I don't like that. That, that rubs me wrong but I have to grapple with it because that's what's implied in this text in Psalm 19. Because, you see, these precepts are rooted in who God is. Look at, look at what these precepts do in verse 7. It says, they revive the soul. That's what the law of God does. It revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. That means the youthful, the babe. It, it, it educates them and raises them up and gives them what they need in order to act like an adult. It, it gives joy to the heart, it says in verse 8. These precepts give light to the eyes. Again, in verse 8, the law or the word of the Lord does all of these things. Without the law of the Lord, we have no straight edge. We have no means of measuring what we think or what we do. Without the law of God, there, there, there's no way to build a life. There's no joy for the heart, and there's no light for the eyes. So I, I would ask you a real obvious question. Um, you're probably ahead of me on this, but, but the question for all of us to wrestle with when we read a text like this that describes the Word of God in such a glorious way, the question is, what is my straight edge? What, what do I allow? What do I use to judge myself? What guides my choices or decisions? What checks my desires? What judges my feelings? What decides what is righteous or what is good? Uh, we all use standards of one kind or another. 
every person does, every person always has. I find it interesting when we go all the way back to the very beginning. Uh, we're in the Garden of Eden, and there's Adam and Eve, and, and obviously they're relating to God, they're loving God, God is loving them, they're having this communion of, of soul and spirit with God that's unlike anything any of us have, have been able to experience. But at one point, things dramatically changed. You know, enter Satan, enter this serpent, and uh, he appeals to something that, that he hopes or he perceives might be in Adam or Eve, or both of them. He appeals to this desire that they might want to be like God, equal with God. And that's what the serpent tells them would happen if they would just eat what God told them not to eat. He says they surely wouldn't die. That's, that's what he told them. And he also said they would become like God. But come to find out, the serpent was lying to them. Oh, go figure. And they ate. And what happened? Well, they die immediately spiritually. Uh, they're immediately separated from God. And, and then they eventually even die physically. They become exactly unlike God. Not like it. They now know evil. They are perpetrators of evil. Adam and Eve did not listen to God's word, to his precepts, to his law. They ignored it. They listened to the evil one. They did what seemed right in their own eyes. That's a familiar refrain in the book of Judges, if you've ever read the book of Judges. They did what seemed right in their own eyes. And that's what, frankly, we've all of us been doing ever since. All of us. We've been trying to be like God. Even as we deny him or even as we ignore him, even as we refuse to see and embrace and appreciate his glory, we make our own laws based on little more than what we think will make us happy, what we think will give us pleasure, what we think will make others like us, what we think feels good. And this isn't anything new. This is what human beings have done and continue to do, all of us. There's almost a diabolical irony in this, if you think about it, because God's law, God's word is actually very clear. It says that happiness, it says that blessedness cannot and will not be found in seeking your own pleasure. You won't find blessedness there. You won't find happiness there. The Psalms declare, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law, the precepts of the Lord. Psalm 119, again, blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. The irony is that when I die to my relentless pursuit of self, self-righteousness, self-promotion, self-fulfillment, self-actualization, self-identification, and I begin instead to live in submission to God and his word, that's where and that's when I actually come to embrace and discover what blessedness really is. David said, great peace have they who love your law and nothing can make them stumble. Peace, joy, blessing, hope, Love, endurance, strength, all things we need, all things human beings are always looking for. We find these things, says David, in keeping the law of God. Now, 
if that is true, that there are profound implications from this. You see, because the law of the Lord is perfect, says David, reviving the soul, making wise the simple, giving joy to the heart, giving light to the eyes. Therefore, if you ignore the law of God, if you break his precepts, what happens? Well, if I do that, my soul shrivels. If I break the precepts of God, my thoughts become foolish. If I disdain the law of God, my heart will be filled with sorrow, not joy. My eyes will have no light. In other words, if I break his precepts, then that very behavior will be what breaks me. And believe me, I've lived that out. I know that to be true. I know what breaks me and... It's when I disdain or disobey the law of God. You see, friends, it should be so obvious to us, but it's not. And it's not because of something called sin, the sin in us. Submission to God's good law does not enslave us. It actually liberates us. And we should know this. We should see this. In other words, God's law is so good, it it lets us be who we were meant to be, creatures made in his image, submitting to him, honoring him, glorifying him, and when we do those things, loving each other. This is the very thing for which we were made. Uh, Martin Luther was studying a passage of scripture one time with some students. This is not Martin Luther King Jr., but Martin Luther, the reformer, and... um, he came across a text that they were looking at together, and something in the text troubled him. He didn't exactly like it. It's like, uh, I don't exactly like what I'm preaching to you because it convicts me uh, terribly. And so, but, but, you know, I'm preaching it to you because I want you to be as miserable as I am as I look at this text. But Martin Luther was looking at a passage like that. It was bothering him, and this is what he said to his students. He said, you should not believe your conscience or your feelings more than the word which the Lord who receives sinners preaches to you. He puts a hierarchy, a priority in place. The Bible says that we need God's word. We we need his law. Those are the rails we're meant to run on. His ordinances are altogether righteous, says David. To us, they are more precious than gold, says David. Sweeter than honey, verse 10. And the point is, we need God's law like we need vital resources, vital riches, vital food, vital sustenance for life. God's law, if listened to and obeyed, brings liberation. It brings life. His law, the goodness of it, the righteousness it displays is what we were made for. It's the restriction that we actually need. I had a professor in college, a philosophy professor, uh, who used to say the real freedom only happens when you find the right restrictions. And he would go on to explain that a life without restrictions is not life, it's death, actually. Practically everything in life, he would say, illustrates this very basic point. Take a sparrow, submerge it in water. What happens? Well, it drowns, right? Because it doesn't have the equipment. It's not meant to flourish in that environment. But a sparrow in the right environment, given the air, can soar, can fly, can flourish. Because there it has the right set of restrictions. A polar bear in Miami, a jogger in the Arctic, both are dying, right? Because they are both in the wrong environment. But reverse their environments and they can thrive. 
They need the right set of restrictions, was his point. And it's a good one. You get the idea. David says, for you and me to thrive spiritually, emotionally, relationally, we need a certain personal, spiritual environment. We need God's moral authority in our lives. Uh, David says, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. There's great blessing. Living our lives in obedience to God's word will bless us. It will help you. It will help me be who we are actually truly meant to be. Now, if you've stayed with me at all, and one or two of you have up to this point, we run into a huge problem in this psalm. David says, there is a God that's clear to everyone. The heavens declare the glory of God. This God has given us his law, his word. He has revealed himself. He has made his will evident to us. But says David in verse 12, who can discern his errors? Who can discern his errors? He's asking who can really know their sin? Yes, when I fear the Lord, I know the commandments of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The ordinances of the Lord are pure and altogether righteous. But I also know something in me is badly broken. Something in me likes to sin. That likes me more than anyone or anything else. Something in me even deceives me about my own sin. It's not my sin problem. You're the problem. Any spouse has ever said something like that to, you know. This is Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart, that place from which we think and feel and, and reason, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The answer is no one. No one can understand it. That is what sin does in me. I can't even trust. I can't even understand my own heart. My thoughts are confused. They're conflicted. Yes, I want what is good. I want what is honoring to God. I want to glorify God, but I also want what I want. I want to please me, even if that means displeasing God. And this is David's struggle. This is David's recognition as well when he cries out, who can discern his errors. This is why David prays, forgive my hidden faults in verse 12. He's talking about the sin that he does even when he's not aware of it. These are the sins that he is oblivious to, the times that he hurts the people around him, not even knowing that he's hurt them. Uh, this, this is self-centeredness that he displays without even being aware of it. But David doesn't stop there. He goes on to say in verse 13, Keep me from willful sins. May, ne- may they not rule over me. These are the sins that he knowingly committed, that, that we knowingly commit. And David is right. These sins do rule over us because we go after these sins. We give ourselves to these sins. And what happens is they become... They become false gods. They become idols to us. The sins, these sins hold us in bondage. They become addictions of a sort. Good things like, like work or making money or succeeding in business or doing well academically or winning in some competition, some sport. These things become bad things because we turned them into little gods. We've got to have it. And so good things like food or drink, recreation, sex, all used in their proper context are a blessing. In fact, they're not just a blessing. They are actually gifts to us from God. But when we 
overindulge or take them out of their proper context, they become actually addictions. And so food and drink become gluttony and, and drunkenness and recreation becomes sloth or laziness. Sex becomes adultery, pornography becomes all about self-satisfaction. People pursue good things wrongly. That's nothing new. Uh, we always have. David is acknowledging that these things happen in him, despite who God is, how glorious God is, despite what God says in his perfect law, in his precepts. God know, or David knows that the sin in him destroys him personally and relationally and, and spiritually. And because he fears the Lord, this is not what David's heart desires in verse 9. Uh, there's actually a sort of movement in Psalm 19 from general revelation to special revelation. Uh, it's, it's a movement from an acknowledgement of God that there is a God, there's this creator, there's this sustainer, to actually fearing God. In other words, personally knowing the God who enters into covenant with you, makes promises with you, the God who redeems you. He's a heavenly father to you. He adopts you into his family. There's movement in this psalm. And we see this movement in how David uses the names of God. In the first six verses of this psalm, David uses the name Elohim for God. It's the general indicator of a divine being, right? It's the generic name for God. He's the creator, the maker, the sustainer. He's glorious. He's almighty. He's Elohim. But in verses 7 to 14, David shifts. He chooses another name for God. It's the name Yahweh. This is God's covenant-making name, a God who enters into a marriage with us. This is the name God gave to Moses at Sinai, the name given to God's people to personally identify him, with him. This is the God who reveals himself as their father. This is the God who rescues them. This is the God who redeems them. This is God's personal name, Yahweh. It's the name David uses when he is wrestling with the fact that God's law is perfect. It commands us to be perfect. It commands us to be courageous, to be loving, to be honest, to be humble, to be good, to be gentle, to be faithful, to be forgiving, to be wise, to be like God, and our hearts say, yes, yes, that is what I want to be. That is who I want to be. God and his law are perfect and righteous. They are radiant with truth and beauty. But I am not. And that's the great tension in this psalm. I am sinful. I am unrighteous. I am a law breaker despite all my best efforts and friends this is david in verse 9 the fear of the lord is pure enduring forever when we fear god we understand the law and make use of it correctly it, it is perfect it is sweet it is trustworthy we want what david wants he says in verse 14 may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight that's what we want but that's not who we are is it? And that is precisely why David ends this beautiful psalm almost with a great big, and you'll be glad because I'm getting near the end here, almost with a great big oh, sigh. It's a sigh of relief. He says, oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Verse 14. 
David knew that only God could be his rock, his redeemer. David knew that when he looked at the beauty of the law of God, the word of God, the commands of God, they were beautiful, they were wonderful, they were glorious, and he couldn't keep the law. He needed to stand on something solid. He needed a rock. He needed someone to redeem him from the fact that he couldn't live up to the keeping of the law. And this is where David brings us from Elohim to Yahweh. Just like David in the Old Testament, so also in the New. We are reminded that our religion is only for moral failures. We're going to rehearse that in just a second. Our religion is only for those who cannot keep the law and they know it. For people who know that they need a rock, they need a redeemer. Jesus was dining one time at Matthew's home. You remember Matthew, one of the apostles. Matthew is leaving his, his business, a tax collector business, quite a lucrative business. And uh, he was deciding he was going to follow Jesus. And so they're having this dinner at Matthew's house with all his buddies and friends. And this is what we read in Luke 5. A large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered him, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so that's my mission this morning, to remind you all how sick you are. <laughs> you need a rock. You need a redeemer. How do I know this? Because I know this very deeply that that is the truth about me. Jesus was telling them, if you think you are righteous, if you think you have healed yourself by keeping my perfect law, well, then you haven't begun to understand the law or yourself. The law of God reveals the character of God. Yes, he is perfect. He's trustworthy. He's glorious. He's right. He's radiant. But the law of God also reveals our character, and we are none of those things. And so like David, we cry out, who can discern his errors? I don't even begin to fathom the full depth of my sin and brokenness. But I'll tell you what that does for me. That drives me to Jesus. That drives me to the place when I say, who can discern his errors? I can't discern mine. It drives me to the place where I sigh I look to Jesus and I say, oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You see, Jesus said, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for sinners. That's what he was doing when he obeyed the perfect law perfectly for us. That's what he was doing when he died on a cross to pay for our sins, past, present, future sins. And that's why he came back from the dead demonstrating that he had overcome the penalty for our sins, death itself. Jesus and Jesus alone is our rock and our redeemer. Amen? You want me to pray, Brad? Father, this, this text reminds us of, of your beauty, of your glory. It's undeniable. The, the creation itself is 
pouring forth speech day after day after day, giving you praise, identifying who you are, and yet we deny this, Father. And then there's your word, your law, your precepts, which are so perfect, giving light to the eyes and joy to the heart, and we can and do recognize their beauty, but then we can and do also recognize that we break them day after day after day. And so we are driven to you, Jesus. You who are our rock, our foundation. You who alone offer us redemption. And we say thank you. Thank you for giving us everything we need. Your righteousness, as well as your forgiveness. We say thank you. Amen. Well, Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, said something very similar to, to Psalm 19. He's kind of cataloging and, and describing the myriad of ways that, that the law and sin wage war within himself. And he says this in chapter 7. He says, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And he feeling the tension that, that, uh, that Dwayne just cultivated within us, said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? In other words, Paul is discovering and realizing, even as he's articulating something he knows already, he's rediscovering and, and learning anew that salvation can't come from within. It doesn't come from within us because within us is too compromised by its opposite and our need for, for grace in the first place. Sin came from without, on the outside in, in the garden, as Dwayne preached on. And the table, then, communion, is Jesus' reminder to us that redemption has to come from the outside in as well. It's actually really good news that the way that we feel about God or the way that we feel about ourselves is not true of who we are. That what God has declared from the outside in is. And so in the same way that the bread and wine nourishes our bodies, that truth, that reality, that gospel nourishes our souls and helps us to feel a little bit differently in the process at the same time. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body. It is broken for you that though you have broken the law as all have, I have not, but I will be broken in your stead. Likewise, he took the wine and he poured it out and he says, this wine is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the remission of sins. You are cleansed from any law breaking. You are, you are resolved. Both the hidden things that you don't know or are aware of that you are doing, as it says in, in 12 and 13, as well as the things you do intentionally. I make that new in me. He says, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, you proclaim my death until I come. You proclaim the objective goodness and invitation of my love for you that will never fail no matter how long and no matter how many invitations it takes for you to come and feast upon redemption. That's really good news. If that is your hope, even just a little bit, this table is for you. After I pray, I encourage you to come down, and as soon as there are 10 or 12 gathered around each of the two tables here and on the other side of the room, uh, we will take the body and uh, blood together. Let's pray. Jesus, 
Thank you for satisfying what we cannot and in turn becoming the satisfaction our hearts long for. Lord, be the outside in redemption that we need to be transformed from the inside out. By your love and your grace, Lord, nourish us, feed us, redeem us, and give us the strength to live as your, as your people. We pray all this, Lord, in your name. Amen.